Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, June the 2nd, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, June the 6th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us. At koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 110th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. Democracy is not a free ride. It is incumbent upon U.S. citizens you and I, to hold our government accountable for the domestic and foreign policy initiatives that our taxpaying money pays for. Tonight, we're blessed to have back with us Alfredo Desaias, a distinguished international law expert with more than 40 years of service to the UN, to help us responsibly determine what international law accountability for the United States means. As a world leader, if our foreign policy is not held accountable to international law, we will lose this world. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Thursday, June the 2nd, 2022. We will be rebroadcasting this interview with our esteemed guest on Monday, June the 6th, 2022 at 6 p.m. Before introducing our guest, I just had some introductory comments. Increasingly, as gross wealth inequality continues to be maintained and expands, so also does disinformation become the increasing norm in order to substantiate unacceptable compromises to democracy. Hence is the importance and the function of bringing light into darkness to provide a reliable community-based resource that provides only well-vetted, documented information to its listeners that they can rely on for its veracity and honest attempts to get at the truth. A large number of U.S. foreign policy claims that later proved to be false, but at the time were swallowed largely whole by the American public, have been routinely documented in real time on this show when the events and the accusations were occurring since this producer joined the co-op airwaves some 20 years ago. One such example is bringing light into darkness challenged the U.S. government claims of certainty that it was the Assad government that was responsible for the August 21st, 2013 gas attack in El Gota, Syria. And they rolled this accusation out led by Secretary of State at the time, John Kerry. And it was just incredibly absent from any evidentiary basis that was incontrovertible. And the Assad government denied the accusations. 
we've done a number of shows at that time and since that time that continued to question this completely unsubstantiated claim, which became a false reality in American minds because our media just merely repeated what the government claimed rather than demanding verification of those claims. We brought to the show and to the table the work of the physicist Theodore Postel and others. And then more recently, as we fast forward from that 2013 August event to 2021, our claim that there was not the certainty that John Kerry had promised to the American public was validated by a rootclaim.org finding that with some 96% certainty that the parties that were responsible for those horrific war crimes were in fact U.S. allied Al-Qaeda folks and not Assad. So that's a lot about what this show is about is looking at events and what's being proposed to the American public and what actually is going on. And the type of political economic system that we have, I think, was really revealed during the economic downturn and COVID as well. But it produced, as its initial and most consistent response, policies that rescue and compensate the losses, not of the majority population, not of the most vulnerable, but of the most wealthy of the world and of our country, the 1%, while largely neglecting the interests of the 99%, which includes not just the tens of millions of Americans on the brink of losing their jobs, but of course, throughout the world. And this gross wealth inequality arguably is the greatest poison to democracy everywhere. And it is one of the most underreported news items within our mainstream media, whose job it seems to me is to distract attention from this profound unfairness. Back on October 11th, 2021, our guest, who was journalist and director of inequality.org, Chuck Collins, described this profoundly undemocratic reality this way, quote, I think part of the pickle we are in is as wealth concentrates in fewer hands, those wealthy people deploy their wealth and their power to rig the rules to get more wealth and power. It becomes kind of a vicious cycle. Lastly, I just wanted to indicate that the greedy run the world and use their wealth and power to control information and to affect what they call a rules-based order, if you will. This is what we've been hearing from Blinken and from the Biden government, rules-based order. The last thing I wanted to add was that bringing light into darkness suggests that one simple question that is never asked regarding measuring the democratic or undemocratic influence of our country's foreign policy projects is are you better off now than you were before U.S. foreign policy intervention? And I'm talking about the majority population. Of the countries that we intervene in. And while the Biden administration and the mainstream media were celebrating the same old bipartisan canard, symbolizing that the United States is good and fights evil everywhere, our show back on December 13th, 2021, and subsequent shows empirically documented that the outcome of the majority population's quality of life, living condition in a host of countries in which U.S. foreign policy succeeded, namely Haiti, Ecuador, Bolivia, Iraq, Libya, and Honduras, that the quality of life in those countries had measurably and significantly declined. And it's with that introduction that I wanted to indicate that in a rules-based order, international law, it seems, is avoided and is the first and foremost casualty of a rules-based order that Blinken refers to. And instead, the advantages and the advantageous position of the United States and the elite one-tenth of one percent of 
its close Western allies that collectively make up what Malcolm X had described as the international power structure, that it is they that dominate the world majority populations. In fact, in place of international law, what rules the world is a system best characterized as one with double standards. And with that introduction, there's an article in Counterpunch, a profoundly important piece called Double Standards at the UN Human Rights Council by Alfredo Desaias. It was on May the 17th, 2022, just a couple of weeks ago. And I cannot tell you how privileged and how important our conversations in the past with Mr. Desaias has been. And we look forward to getting a further education tonight. Mr. Desaias, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Pedro, for inviting me again, and I am available whenever you want to invite me. Very good. Well, well, let me just briefly inform our audience that Alfred Desaias is a Cuban-born American lawyer and writer. He's active in the field of human rights and international law. He had a previous office position of great significance within the UN as the UN independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order for some six years from 2012 to 2018. That's really where I wanted to turn, if I could. Your article, the title, Double Standards at the UN, is very indicative of what you cover in the article. But it's no secret, you write, that the UN Human Rights Council essentially serves the interests of the Western developed nations and does not have a holistic approach to all human rights. In other words, prioritizing first class over second class citizens, I would suggest. But you immediately write, blackmail and bullying are common practices that the power invested in some of these countries have. And the U.S. has proven that it has sufficient soft power to cajole weaker countries. Can you basically share the definition of soft power in your usage there? And then also this blackmailing and bullying. You say it doesn't occur in the halls of the UN, but it occurs in more subtle but very powerful ways. Can you share what your concerns and what your experience is there? As you know, I've been in the UN system for more than 40 years as a senior lawyer with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights as a staff member. And of course, also as a consultant, once I took retirement, also as a rapporteur. Now, I have entertained close friendships with a considerable number of ambassadors. And I'm talking about ambassadors uh, from South Africa, from Uganda, from Tanzania, from Senegal, from Latin American countries such as Argentina, Brazil, and Venezuela, over the years also Ecuador, as the case may be. What uh, these diplomats do not say publicly, but do say privately, is that they are put under considerable pressure. And uh, these countries, even if they disagree with the United States on fundamental things, they also have to keep in mind that economic pressure hurts and it hurts their populations. So they sometimes have no choice but uh, to go along with the United States for fear of being subjected to sanctions or whatever, shall we say, dirty tricks that the White House and the State Department will concoct. Now, I've seen a lot of bullying in the Human Rights Council, as indeed in its predecessor, 
the Commission on Human Rights. And uh, double standards are the order of the day. I would like to see a rules-based international order. In principle, we already have it in the United Nations Charter. But who observes the United Nations Charter? Who abides by it? Only very few countries. And certainly not the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, etc. I mean, when Blinken talks about a rules-based order, he's using a weasel term. I mean, he is talking about U.S. rules. That is, Uncle Sam will tell the world what the rules are. The United States does not want to abide by the U.N. Charter, so it wants to create the impression that there is no rules-based international order. But uh, certainly Articles 1 and 2, the purposes and principles of the United Nations, are extremely clear. And it's also extremely clear that we violate those two articles systematically. So, Mr. Josiah, so just to before you go on, so when you hear the concept like the coalition of the willing, right, all of these nations that joined the United States into Iraq, you're saying that there's this subtle arm twisting behind the scenes that due to economic, rather the threat of sanctions or the threat of debt that is connected to the IMF or World Bank that the U.S. has disproportionate. I'm happy that uh, you mentioned the IMF and the World Bank. I wrote two reports for the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council 2017, uh, building up on my official visit as rapporteur to these bodies and the many conversations I held with senior officials of these bodies. And it's quite clear that uh, the Bretton Woods institutions are there to advance the interests of the United States uh, Department of the Treasury. And they are not there to help countries. They're there to control. They're there to maintain the neoliberal system that we have in the United States and in the United Kingdom and in Canada and so on. So countries who have borrowed from the International Monetary Fund, they have to be careful because they will be blocked by the United States. As you probably know, there's weighted voting in the International Monetary Fund. The United States essentially controls the House. Uh, it's, it's not a one man, one vote. It's not a general assembly, as uh, we know from the United Nations system otherwise. But uh, what bothers me is an issue that I deal with in the article in Counterpunch in my new book, which is supposed to come out uh, end of July, my book entitled Countering Mainstream Narratives, Clarity Press, Atlanta, Georgia. There, I talk about a phenomenon. The phenomenon is facts without consequences. I mean, what you said about Syria is absolutely correct. And essentially, we know it. Essentially, it's been published in first in the alternative media, but later on, as the facts have come out, part of the story has come out in the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN, etc. But these are facts without consequences. There's a tacit agreement that although we know 
that uh, there were false flags and there were staged events and that our allies, al-Nusra and al-Qaeda, etc., whom we used and these infamous uh, white helmets in uh, Syria, even though we know that they are responsible for these crimes, we continue repeating the old lies. And the mainstream media continues to carry the old lies. Now, many people know that they are lying, but they feel impotent. They feel there's nothing they can do about it. And so that let, is the way it is. You, Mr. Desai, so you've covered a lot of ground there, and I think there's some basic stuff I'd like you to reiterate, if you would, sir. That would include that the IMF and the World Bank and these international lending institutions that the United States and the UK and these Western powers have this hugely disproportionate effect on, that if I am a borrowing nation, it's almost like I'm a drug addict and, and you are my drug dealer and you can compel me to act in almost whatever way I want or else you'll cut off my drug. In other words, you're suggesting that the terms of these loans and this by these big lending institutions can be used in a coercive manner to get well, they are they are yeah. systematically you know who wrote about it back in 2007 very famous book the shock doctrine right by naomi klein mm -hmm. uh it pays to read it because not only does she describe what had happened up to 2007 but it explains very well what is happening today mm -hmm. the system continues in its criminal path and imposes so-called loan conditionalities on third world countries that force them to fire half of the civil service, to close uh, hospitals, to privatize everything. If hospitals are not making a profit, so of course they're closed. If a, an educational institution is not drawing a profit, it's again closed, etc. The damage that the International Monetary Fund has done to the world is humongous. Would you say that also an impact of that clearly is the continued concentration of wealth to, towards that 1% or one-tenth of 1% that we were talking about at the beginning? That in other words, when you privatize, what happens is the majority population suffer at the direct inverse benefit to the elite 1% whose wealth increases proportionally. It's essentially a direct wealth transfer from the majority population to the elite wealthy. And as a result, we can see the almost complete dissipation of our middle class over the last 30 years. And you have this wealth transfer as a consequence of social programs and those types of things that are very important for the quality of life of majority populations be gutted. And the result is that the wealth is a transfer to the wealthiest. So this Well, that is, that is the name of the game. That right. is what is intended. But of course, there is window dressing. There is an attempt to dress this up as helping poor nations. And the narrative that you hear in the New York Times or in CNN is that we are so generous. We are so philanthropic. We are helping these countries out of poverty. What countries have actually pulled millions and millions of people out of poverty? China. 
hundreds of millions of people who were in abject poverty 50, 60 years ago have been pulled out of. Mm -hmm. In Venezuela, before the draconian sanctions that were imposed on Venezuela, the country had really pulled out. I mean, they don't have the favelas like you have them in Rio de Janeiro or in uh, Sao Paulo uh, or in so many other countries of Latin America where there is really abject poverty and people live in cardboard houses. Venezuela made an enormous effort, built 4 million units, 4 million apartments for the poor. I mean, something that is really unheard of. Mm -hmm. But of course, you don't read about that in the New York Times or in the Washington Post. The main problem is the information war. We are all subjected to brainwashing day in, day out. We are indoctrinated also with the illusion that we are, by definition, the good guys and that we can tell everybody else what to do or how to run their affairs. And we have a right to export our kind of democracy, our model of democracy. Uh, We can export it to other countries vertically. They don't understand that democracy is horizontal. And democracy must be grassroots. Democracy must be homegrown. Something that comes from abroad is not democratic. It is just uh, imperialism. It is neocolonialism. And that is what we're doing, but you don't read that. In your article, you actually talk about a couple of other things that are connected to that line of thinking. And I think it's really important. And we're speaking with the, the esteemed international law expert, Alfredo Desaias. And again, I just want to say that you indicate in your article that you mentioned about Venezuela, any country that moves in a direction to promote the interests of the majority class, that by definition will cut into the profiteering of that one-tenth of a percent. Of course, and that is why the United States has been, for the last 23 years, trying to overturn the Chavez revolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did so, and we financed the coup d'etat in uh, April of 2002, Mm -hmm. which failed. Chavez was indeed deposed, and uh, Pedro Carmona took over for 48 hours. And then Pedro Carmona had to flee, and uh, the army brought back Hugo Chavez. Now, when we don't succeed through a coup d'etat, we try it again. And that's what Juan Guaido was doing in 2019 on two occasions. That was nothing less than uh, a coup d'etat, which he did in January and then again in April of 2019. And with Juan Guido, let's talk about that for a second, because you are an international law expert. We claim to recognize him as the leader of a government. We froze uh, hundreds of millions, actually a billion dollars in gold. What was the alleged legal fabric in which we claim that Juan Wido was the president? Or well, the- there's nothing legal about it. It is a flagrant violation of international law mm-hmm. to recognize a pretender as uh, the legitimate representative of that country especially when that person is someone who pretends through a coup d'etat 
to come to power. I mean, he never ran for the office of president. And uh, the maneuver that was taken by the um, National Assembly of Venezuela back in 2019 was to claim that in the absence uh, of the president, meaning uh, Nicolas Maduro, that the National Assembly uh, could name a successor. But that's ridiculous if you know the constitution of Venezuela. Article 233 is very clear that if for whatever reason Nicolas Maduro were to die, or were to be become disabled and perform its functions, it is not the National Assembly that takes over the vice president, who at that moment was Delcy Rodriguez. Mr. Desaez, before you continue, we need to take a short pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. And we'll be back with our very special guest in this very educational international law perspective right after this brief pause. Don't touch that dial.